I am a psychiatrist by profession. And there is a joke about psychiatrists that when the two psychiatrists meet, meet each other, how they greet. So one psychiatrist says to another, You are okay, how am I? <laughs> it's a paradox that you have to go to someone to know how am I. Somebody, medicine is a paradoxical profession in many ways. That I have to go to someone who will tell me how my body is, how my head is and how everything is. It shows the degree, it shows the extent of my ignorance about myself. And ignorance is never a good thing, it's frightening. So, equally someone else is empowered to set me right. I don't have the power to set myself right. And quite naturally, no offense meant to anyone, I am part of the medical community very much. But most doctors don't like to give autonomy in the hands of the patients. They got to build the houses. So, <laughs> this is part of the package. <laughs> of course, there are very compassionate doctors in every sphere and there are charlatans in every field. So when I speak about uh, the next maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, and then you would like to have a lot more questions, um, it's not about this system or that system. It's a very mistaken view that, you know, all allopaths are bad and all homeopaths are good and all Ayurveda practitioners are holistic. This also is an illusion. Systems have their advantages. Each has its own advantages. Each has its own issue. If someone has a heart attack, you probably would rush to the ICO. And there is a meaning in it. Equally, there are problems and all of us have experience of this, as Govind was pointing out. I've had myself, when I first started reading Mother and Shurvindo, of course I didn't read them with the eye of a doctor. By then I was already taken in that here is a vast sun of knowledge and everything that comes out of their, falls from their lips is Aptavakya Praman. The Shastras in India, there are four kinds of Praman. One of them is the highest is Aptavakya, the word of the realized one. You don't question it because it's a knowledge which transcends the senses, transcends the reason. In fact, it is said that this knowledge transcends the reason just as reason transcends the senses. So it's that kind of knowledge. So if they say something, it makes sense, but that little medical mind was always there, so you have to experiment. So I too had some kind of a chronic problem. When I read it, I thought, so simple as that. Actually, I read the best part of it. You pray, you call for grace and grace heals you. By then I had not read, you know, there are a number of reports. God in the CCU is a very famous study. Some of our doctor friends, there are more actually, by the way, there are, um, I think, seven, eight among us who are doctors and there are others who are not qualified doctors but as they say everybody is a little doctor, a little poet and a little mad. 
these are universal things. If you don't believe me, just tell anyone here that I have this problem. Everybody will have something to offer by way of suggestion. <laughs> so, yeah, so doctor is not about being qualified as a doctor. Often that limits you. Sometimes, you know, a suggestion coming from, you know, uh, right next to you may be more helpful. <laughs> of course, she is qualified, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like that. So medicine is not the property, unique property of someone. And I tried what I read and uh, strangely within a week and actually I didn't take any medicine. There was no, um, no medication, no nothing. I just literally called grades, nothing else. So <laughs> I said, let me see if it works. It worked and I was absolutely surprised because I had tried allopathic things. Skin conditions are very difficult to cure and it was again a skin condition. So it just vanished. So I said, this, my God, this is, I, it was unbelievable. So, um, in the journey of life, such events happen and they happen with a purpose and we begin to look at new ways of looking at things. I think it's not a question of systems. It's a question of the way we as, uh, I won't even use the word moderns, but we in general look at life and look at man and look at things. Now, um, to to contrast it with the other view of life, if I may say so, which is which was existing at some point of time, but now, you know, Shurabindu is one of the pioneers who brings it out. The current way of looking at life is from the surface to the depths, from below upwards, and from the small to the vast. Let me see what, what it means. If you go today to uh, any medical practitioner, or even many of the other systems, though they accept it uh, in belief, say that, you know, is there a soul which can help you and which can heal you? Say, we don't see it. Where is it? In the heart? No, no. Heart is on the left side and there are a number of arteries and veins and we have analyzed everything. You are mistaken. There is no soul. Is it in the head? There was a theory current some time back that it is in the pineal gland. Till people found that you can shoot through the pineal gland and the person dies. So, <laughs> there were all kinds of theories like that. So, the soul is not in the body and therefore it doesn't exist. Now look, the presumption which has been made without realizing it. The presumption is, matter is the soul reality. So, soul must be something material. Now, very frankly, if soul is something material, it's not worth the trouble. As simple as that. Something as commonplace as that and despite all our rational thinking and logic we are not able to see that we have made a presumption very unconsciously and we grow up with that presumption. Where is the soul? If it is there we must see it. There are so many things we don't see. They exist. Even we don't see the electron. Nobody sees. It's a, it's a mathematical reality. It's something which you have to bring in to explain a whole lot of physical phenomena. So, soul is like a factor X which one brings in. There was a whole conference sometime back in India. In fact, uh, interestingly, now in WHO we have the word spiritual health, spiritual well-being and its history is very interesting. Dr. Bisht, who was once uh, the personal physician, a personal physician means he, he used to come and even attend on the mother 
and the mother would tell tell him that you don't talk about he would say i don't understand anything so don't worry about it i don't want that understanding from you and he was director of jipmar and later on he became the uh, a you know deputy i think in who the top man next top man so he raised this issue that we say that health is about physical mental social well being so a pack of wolves is physically healthy mentally alert and socially well knit so there's a big debate and discussion eventually they brought in this uh, there was a study done and in the study when they really did a lot of studies so a pilot study done through many centers they found that um, there is a factor x which comes into the play in health and illness which is important to the whole process of healing so that was called as factor x and based on that the word spiritual well being which came right from india and was introduced eventually as part of the official definition of who so no doctor can really today say that i have nothing to do with spirituality because he is part of the world health organization which acknowledges the spiritual dimension of health even if it gives a lip service so this is to just say how the tide of time is turning and just for those of us who are who are aware of the great event in 1956 this inclusion of spiritual well being came in 1960 or the 60s which is very interesting it was one of the things that was ushering in a new world yes 50 years have gone and it still remains largely a lip service so more and more doctors are turning towards it that if i enter into that it would be more appropriate to a, a full fledged medical fraternity as to how many ways there's so many studies and so many uh, things which have come up but let me now uh, put it in a different context because Uh, of the nature of all of us who are present which is a compliment incidentally so <laughs> it makes my task in a certain sense easier so um, as i was saying that there is a view of life which sees the surface and tries to understand the depths it sees it's a bottom up view so from below we try to understand above so we look at as life is here organized and we dismiss any possibility of anything greater than mind and reason and the senses because again from here i don't experience it now i need to do something to experience it now that escapes human understanding spontaneously uh, i mean i give this example when people ask me oh all this is very fine so i tell them look you know just to complete my md i had to study mbbs for and a half now it's five and a half years in india Uh, 3 years of md so 8 and a half years one year internship 9 and a half and almost after 10 years i am just an entrant into the field and with regard to spirituality people want to get it just like this at least one should be prepared to spend 5 years half of it <laughs> and with that kind of sincerity as one as you know studies during medicine i'm sure some of us can relate with it that we sometimes don't get time even to you know grab a lunch we are rushing and you start living in a kind of equanimity because you have cut the dead body and then you have rushed back and you don't have time even to wash your hands at least boys used to do it like that i'm sorry there are women doctors not agree and we used to grab the lunch and rush back because you know you have to get back 
so you know it's uh, it's one kind of uh, life which floods your mind with a kind of paradigm without knowing we are in it it's a whole initiation ceremony if you like and everybody is initiated now into the medical profession so one begins to think like that so again i use a term called scientific superstition and rational dogmas are worse than other kind of superstition because you can break free from other superstition but scientific superstition and medical and rational dogmas hold on to you because we cannot think they can be anything beyond it so it's like a big clutch upon the consciousness and then everything we begin to think like that so you know if somebody and we fail to see the anomalous and the abnormal which abounds there is the story of kalijipran when you know someone died and the family went and asked this master this this a, a, a doctor that you know why the person has fallen why did he die he said you know they are very very small organism infinitesimally small because of that organism your loved one has died so he is not satisfied an infinitesimal organism has power to drop a man full fledged such a developed peak of creation then what about struggle for survival and struggle of the fittest then why there is evolution beyond the bacteria if bacteria is so powerful virus is so powerful so he will not convince so he goes to master spiritual master and says so what could be the reason he says will of the infinite so he is equally lost So he says, between the infinitesimal and the infinite, something happened, and I don't understand. So you know, it's it's a way of looking at life which completely clutches us, and uh, then we are unable to break through, break free. What uh, a spiritual vision brings is another kind of view, which uh, I have my own definitions uh, and terms. So one of them is I say top-down view. top down view is the view of the ashwatthama tree that you look at creation from above downwards and there are people who have taken pains and struggle just like today modern doctors have taken you know we uh, sometimes make fun but if you really look at the life it's really very difficult and the kind of struggle that has gone into it we have here right you know somebody who is right in the pulmonary ccu and it's extremely difficult it requires tremendous dedication and couple of doctors there and a doctor here and it's really life which you have to sacrifice a lot struggle a lot study a lot that is the other side of the story one empathizes with that aspect so similarly there have been those who have cut through the layers and layers of consciousness and seen things from above it's not philosophy it's not speculation we have to respect their effort and labor so when a yogi says something he is not uh, you know telling it just as one of those things which has come as a fanciful thing in his mind shobindra says in one of his letters who would be satisfied with such a delusion when somebody asks him are you sure yogic force cures he says who would be satisfied with such a delusion if i had not been experimenting myself day after day week after week months after months to see the effect of the yogic force i would not be so foolish as to speak about it like a scientist meticulously if you read through shobindo's work it's amazing all the ways how yogic force works how it can work and how people can receive it all ifs buts and everything he has really worked 
He says it's a mistake for people to believe. This was one of the objections to this study. In fact, uh, it's a very commonly voiced uh, objection because people often think of God as right up there, omnipotent, omniscient, who is having a magic wand in his hand. And he says, well, he should be cured and he should just get up and start walking out. So, you know, it's a, people often raise this objection that if uh, there is something like a divine, you should need to pray because he anyways knows you are not well, number one. And number two, if you pray, it should be an instant effect. And number three, it should be universal in everyone. So, Shirobindra says, fire burns because there is Agni Shakti in it, but it doesn't burn all things. And in certain conditions, it doesn't burn at all. Even the same thing which it would otherwise burn, it won't burn in certain conditions. So yoga force is like that. Can we really bear this pressure? Can I just take any medicine? There are medicines which are very powerful to heal our, uh, you know, cancers and etc. But not everybody can tolerate. So the same thing applies when we talk of these things like the divine and divine grace and divine force. Uh, it's very easy to say divine force should come and just set everything right. Uh, mother would say, my child... Your body will shatter when she was working on the cells with that supramental force and consciousness years after years of painstaking labor in which several times she would go through what would be medically called as a heart attack and would come back and she has made a joke of it that uh, you know it's a transfer of power and change she would say the poor body the cells are unable to take the onrush of the supramental consciousness it's so powerful she has said it's heart like diamond. So it's like we can imagine a massive thing breaking upon the body. Body is unable to bear it. And then Supreme asked the mother, uh, how are we supposed to do it? She said, I am not telling you to do it. I have been given this painful and difficult task. I don't like any of you to do it because it's extremely painful. She would bear that pain. He said, what do we do? He said, I am doing it for you, you take it from me. So, the point I am trying to make it is yogic knowledge is not just mumbo-jumbo that somebody sits in meditation and comes up with a bright idea. It is based on as much thoroughness, in fact more thoroughness, there is this, some of us may have heard the name of Rupert Seldrack um, uh, when I was writing this, uh, another book of mine um, on health and healing. So, I was going through all these studies and very strangely, these studies that have been done on um, these kind of, you know, ways of healing are much more thorough than even the medical studies because otherwise nobody would accept it. And yet, there is so little acceptance because the human mind is still clamped. It doesn't like to be free. It doesn't want to believe that, well, I can, if I uh, work towards it, find the secret of healing. So there is a top-down view of life and there is an inside-out view of life. Now what is this inside-out view? There is a very interesting uh, phrase in Ishupanishad, not Ishupanishad, I am sorry, Katopanishad and of course in the Gita, which describes the human being. See, all our worldviews eventually spring up from the self-regard of life. So if the self-regard is that man is just matter, there is actually no hope. It's no point in talking much. And it's no point even to bother about medicine or anything. If I am just a conglomeration of matter, then how does it matter whatever I do? Why should I even strive for anything? 
because eventually it's matter, dust. You know, this uh, Omar Khayyam has very beautifully, paradoxically put it across. Um, ah, make the most of life while yet we can. Until unto the dust we descend. Dust unto dust and under dust to lie. Sans wine, sans song, sans singer, sans end. If that is the kind of view of life that is just material, cloth, nothing else, then nothing makes a meaning. Nothing. All the values of life tumble down because it's a kind of material fatalism. And we see today that's happening. Everything, it's not because of anything. You have genes, bad genes. So now, you know, these are new malady. Everybody is scared of genes. Genes are more powerful than my will. They are more powerful than my thought. My intelligence is nothing but an epiphenomena of some kind of a chemical activity going on inside my brain. The babble of my billion neurons or to use the paraphrase tinted comics blistering barnacles is more powerful than all my intelligence put together that a little virus can fall me. So this is one kind of worldview. But the inside out outward worldview is the image of the Ratha. Of course we can take it like a car, it doesn't matter. So in that image the totality of human being is represented that the outer senses and the vital energy are the horses and the body of the Rath is the physical body and the uh, what do they call it uh, the, the Rasi, rain rain is the mind and one who holds the rain is the buddhi and within it who is seated on the journey is the soul, the Dehi it's, I find this image very interesting so there are people now modern worldview of medicine or current worldview of life is that you know it doesn't matter don't bother about who is seated inside I can fix your car that's it maybe you know you may be next trying to get your car fixed so that you can once again go and trample down more down some other people it doesn't matter I just want to fix your car not realizing that the car is breaking down precisely because the one who is driving is not driving well so you go, you get your car fixed and again you give it back to the owner, he comes back again, why? Because he is not driving it well, he doesn't know how to drive a car, you have to teach him how to drive a car. So to come back to this analogy, when the, when the Sarathi, the Buddhi has lent it to the horses, imagine a situation where the, you know, the Sarathi says, horses lead me wherever you want. We would say nonsense, but we do it all the time. So the horses say, fine, we have a holiday. Great. No rains. Unbridled. So they go, you know, your best is five horses are pulling in five different directions. So one is confused. What happens when you don't have control of a horse? It can be frightening. It's very nice to see, you know, you hold the reins and tuck, tuck, you're, you know, going on your way. But imagine a situation when one doesn't know a simple thing like horse riding and gets onto it can be very frightening and it leads you. I had this experience in Nainital, you know, sitting on a horse and as I was going, it's a very narrow path and I had another friend who was in another horse, all doctor, again doctor. So he asked a very stupid question, he should never have asked. He said, are you sure it is safe? He asked it halfway through. <laughs> so the person who was taking us, he said, 
Sometimes it happens that you know the horse falls. <laughs> if it falls, nothing is you know saved. In my life, then he went on to give some examples. <laughs> so I had to tell this doctor friend, why do you have the penchant of asking a wrong question at the wrong time? You could ask him in the beginning or ask him at the end. We have no option. <laughs> so live with faith. So anyways, this is our situation. The senses and the vital energy lead us in any direction. We don't even know that we are not in control of ourselves. And the result is illnesses. It falls, it breaks down, it goes to all kinds of places. And then we go to a doctor, set the horse right. So he keeps the horse for some time, again he sets it right. But problem is not with the poor horse. Problem is we never use the rain and we are in, we, in fact the sarthi has gone off to sleep. In fact he's at the mercy of the horse. So wherever the horse goes the sarthi says fine I'll take you. I mean I'll follow you. So it is uh, leads to a lot, lot of illnesses. And illness is only one of the kind of malady. It leads to many kind of problems. Physical illness, emotional illness, conflicts, social pathologies and above all spiritual maladies. So all this simply because a simple instead of an inside outward view we were adopting it, another view and without even realizing it that uh, you know I am just letting the horse run. Today we call it you know use terms like lifestyle problems and illnesses. Why this lifestyle came after so much battering we have learned that basically I have been ruining my own health. At least doctors are frank enough to now say it. And they have discovered it that you know it's not only about genes. There is something in yourself, in the way you, you live life, in your environment, which you have picked up that you know there are seeds of illness, there is a climate of illness. So we need to understand that there is an inner outer view. So there is something called as someone who is in control of a life. And when we give this control over to desire self, it leads to chaos. At least it should be intellect, buddhi, reason which should control it. If not a greater spiritual sense, that's not easy. So at least the intellect. So what does it do? It's a very simple way. Shreyasya, Priyasya, I have a whole lot of cutlets in front of me. What should I eat and how much should I eat? Buddhi will tell me. You don't have to read a medical book. Our own stomach will tell us. In fact, the mother says children right from beginning should be taught how to recognize what is it that they really want. But we in fact spoil it. Beta kuch to khale. And you know, chocolates and cola and everything. Then when they grow up, they are sick. We are, you know, unhappy about it. But basically, you know, how did it all begin? Because in a misguided love, I kind of, you know, keep feeding, thinking love is equivalent to food. This is typically Indian thought. So sorry, but if you go, you know, must eat, feed, must thrust. And if you don't feed, it's not, there is no love. So unfortunately, you know, it's a... Um, it's, it's, it's one kind of melody, it's a kind of unfortunate way of life which spoils everything and you know the melody comes later. So we must know that if I lead, let my life be led by the desire self, then it will lead to problems. Mother has given a very simple sutra, desires irritate organs. Now you know it's so simple. Any organ is basically a symbolic representation of something, some play of forces inside. If you really look at a body, we can see its symbolic nature. I will not go into it, it is a very detailed study in science in its own right. There are questions. 
maybe. But essentially, when we when desire is in excess, so Ayurveda, what does it say? What does what is the basic principle of health? Any overuse or underuse leads to problems. So there is a lack of balance. Desire overrides one thing, and all other things are subordinated to this one single strain. It may be greed, it may be lust, it may be uh, as a consequence anger and fear and expectation. All these. How does it all start? It starts from this one malady. And later on, uh, it disturbs the whole balance because that area is so much focused that all other areas, see what happens when fear comes. Everything is centered around that small little point which is hurting. So much so that thought, feeling, everything. Ask a person who is pain that, you know, who is in pain that, come, let's sit and meditate. You say, oh, how cruel you are, you are talking of meditation. Get me an aspirin tablet or, you know, combiflam or paracetamol or something. Because the whole consciousness is focused on a small little point. There is no vastness. So this is a kind of worldview which we need to change, realign. Now in this worldview, things begin from within. And then, how is this? This body is simply a surface projection of an activity of consciousness. In the current worldview, consciousness is an epiphenomena of uh, you know neuronal activity. Though actually, if you really look at the facts of creation, we will see everywhere there is consciousness. But I'm not getting into that. Maybe in a strictly scientific forum, or if these issues, we can talk about it. But um, basically, this consciousness works. There are three activities which are in balance to create a state of health. Because constantly things are changing and these three must be in balance. These three are forces of creation, forces of preservation, forces of destruction. Actually, it's in any, any cellular system, organic system, in any society, everywhere the three are active. But they are one deity. They are three phases of one reality. If all this time certain cells do not die, I will fall ill. There is a kind of illness when, you know, there is no death inside the body. But equally when cells die, there should be others which replace it. And while the time they are there, they should be in harmony with the rest of the organism. When this harmony is lost, preservation means a certain kind of harmony of one group of cells with others. It's, it's a complex balance. And when that is lost, it leads to problems because these three are not in tandem. There are times when the uh, forces which are very active in bringing out new things. What is, what is called in Indian thought as Rajogun. Prakriti, you know, works through Rajogun. Overactive. Then other two forces go down. It disturbs balance sooner or later because it cannot sustain itself. By its own momentum it collapses into Tamas, which is the forces of disintegration and chaos begin to act. Darkness, disintegration, chaos. Whereas there is another balance, what is called a Satyaguna, which brings a balance, harmony, light. So these three principles are active all the time. And Indian thought had gone to this extent, that it saw not only uh, Satya Prakriti, Raja Prakriti and Tamo Prakriti, but in every activity, in food, in way of life, everything they could see the play of these three forces. So there are foods which are Tamogun Pradhan. Much of, you know, refrigerated food is that basically, Tamogun Pradhan. Stale food is tamagun pradhan. So it increases the forces of disintegration. You don't have to know exactly what chemicals are active. If one does a study, one will find chemicals which are not, you know, eventually not good. So stale food, rotten food, 
They knew it. They, they didn't know exactly what bacteria is there, or maybe they knew it didn't matter. But food which is rotten becomes thermokon pradhan. So it brings in illnesses. Because it, it brings in forces of disintegration. It makes them active. Foods which are rajogun pradhan, which give a boost, a kick. So we have, you know, cup of coffee and we have all kinds of, most of our food is rajogun pradhan. So in a way it helps the life force to keep active. But on the other hand, if it makes it too active, there is a tendency for rajogun to collapse into tamogun. So, you know, you keep yourself very active with cups of coffee and or nicotine or something and suddenly one is hit after a while. And, uh, you know, because the nerves cannot sustain an overdrive. And then there are foods which are sattugun pradhan, which are like fruits and um, things which are, which, are, which are juicy, fruits etc. And they are very good for... Um, even, even interestingly butter, but of course made out of uh, cow's milk as it was. So snigdha, that is one of the description of Satyagun Pradhan. So it is very interesting because it's directly in contrast with what modern medicine would you know, say. It's not good, but um, if one really goes into its depth, one sees how when you take the food in totality with the Satyagun. So to that, in Indian thought, there was something else which was added that food is not just a question of simply eating, but it's like a sacrament. So any food can become prasad, not just prasad and pasta salad, but it can be prasad. It becomes a prasad by an offering. So that material consciousness is tuned and sanctified by something deep inside. The mother gives a very interesting little thing. Before you eat, Pray that the food that you are going to eat, it rejuvenates your body and creates in it the elements which are helpful for sadhana and for leading an inner life. We all knew it, but you know, we took it for granted. It's a small little consecration, not something external. You don't, one doesn't have to say a particular mantra unless one feels impelled. Fine. It's just an inner state of remembrance that I am eating it while, not just to satisfy my palate. It should be good, it should be pleasant, it should be tasty. But at the same time, it should above all help my body to become strong for the great journey of life, which has a direction, a purpose and should be with the buddhi. So this is a total view picture from within outward. And then of course we have the surface phenomena. Now apart from that, there is another issue which we see a difference between the current way of looking at life and uh, what should be the breaks and what was again existing in the Vedic time is the disconnectedness between the individual and the uh, rest of the universe. And this disconnectedness, which is a reductionist approach, has gone to a point where one sees an organ in isolation with the rest and the body as separate from the mind. And as a result of this disconnect, um, we set an organ right, but the disconnect continues. So again the problem comes up, again and again. So invariably one goes down the spiral. There is hypertension, you control it. There is diabetes, you control it. There is dyslipidemia, you control it. There are heart arteries getting clogged, you control it. And you know, eventually you somehow with medicine make the man like props, you know, carry on for another 20 years. But the disconnect has taken place. 
This disconnect is because of the ego sense within us, but also because of a certain lifestyle. Any lifestyle which is too, where there is too much of egoism tends to become disconnected from the rest of the life. Because by its very nature, and then Shobinda says, all life reacts upon it. And therefore, it is one of the causes of diseases, because there should be a balance between individual life and all life. It's there in nature. There are patterns and rhythms of nature. There are rhythms of season. There are rhythms of day and night. There are rhythms of, um, you know, uh, even if one may say health and Ill illnesses. And one has to respect these are patterns. For instance, take one simple example about sleep. We have been talking about food. The sleep hormones are most active between, let's say, 10.30 at night and 5.30 in the morning. It's a very uh, well-known, it's an established thing now. So, we spoil that rhythm. It's nature's given rhythm, a rhythm of day and night. And when we spoil that rhythm, we are not respecting it, then we are disconnecting it with the rest of the universe without realizing it. Because when nature creates a rhythm, it doesn't create in isolation for one person. It is like, you know, we have been saying it's an all-comprehending intelligence hidden in nature. So it has taken an account of millions of things. Maybe the healing energies of the early morning sun, we don't know. Maybe tomorrow we'll discover that early morning sun has healing energies. We don't know today. And you know, when you lead a life according to a certain rhythm, it is helpful to you because it keeps us connected with the, uh, with, with the uh, nature's working. Another example we may say, take is of seasons. Now people find it very peculiar and sometimes they are very troubled when they go to an Ayurvedic physician and they, you know, they will say, is season mein ye khana, is season mein ye nahi khana, subah mein ye khana, raat ko ye nahi khana, right? You know, you eat khira, if the same khira, if you eat in the morning, it has this property, if you eat it at night, it is this property. If you take it in this season and they feel very frustrated that, you know, my God, what is life worth living after all this? But actually you can't help it. This is a knowledge that seasons, there are patterns in seasons. Animal life is follows that pattern. Why is it that the heartbeat and everything slows down, metabolism slows down, of course, is to generate energy, hibernation. All this is known in animal creation. It respects the rhythm of seasons. There are disorders which increase in spring. There was a famous study of you know certain mental illnesses which showed a predilection for seasons. Somehow these studies have not been... Uh, encouraged further, just as you know the studies of lunar rhythms, there are lunar rhythm, there are solar rhythm, there are cosmic rhythms and uh, you know Ayurveda had studied it. For instance, I'll give you one example of cosmic rhythm. Um, it is there, it is mentioned in the Bhavishya Purana that one of the signs of uh, Kalyo, now I am sounding like an uh, <laughs> old ritualist, but I am just saying that there are ways of looking at it. Um, that, you know, one of the signs of Kali Yoga, it says many signs which one can see, but one of them is that there will be an increasing number of uh, illnesses and the lifespan is extremely shortened. Now, it is as if there is a cosmic rhythm. So, there are certain cycles of creation in which naturally longevity is a natural way of life. It is said that in Satyu, you know, if you read the stories, it's difficult to believe that a thousand year old, uh, you know, somebody is having children. One can't imagine that till thousand years one felt young. This was a way of life. There is another very interesting, the Mahabharata war, which is still re relatively recent. So, what was the age of Arjuna when he was fighting the war? Any guess? Wild guess? Any child? Yes? What was his age? 
Forty. Twenty. That's it. Thank you, sir. You are seventy plus. Yeah. What? Yeah. My age. That's right. And yet he is a hero of the war. We can imagine what what kind of life that must be. That at seventy five you are saying now I am in my prime to fight his his battle. You know that's the time he is fighting his battle. He is preparing himself. The mother says, you know, my child, the great problem is by the time an average human being knows how to live, he is sixty. After that, unfortunately, there is a mindset. So we are preparing ourselves for the grave. This also is a mindset. Average lifespan and all this. All this is going to go away because the new cycle which we are entering in will not, uh, you know, automatically. It's a cosmic rhythm. A new rhythm will emerge. You can't help it. Even if you don't like it, it will emerge. It will happen. Longevity will increase. People are attributing it to all kinds of things, to sanitation, to modern medicine. It's all that is simply a device used by nature. In days which are going to come, a long lifespan will become a way of life. Simply because nature will set the clock differently. It's a, another kind of attunement. This is one example of cosmic rhythms, seasonal rhythms, day and night rhythms. So these are disconnectedness. And this disconnectedness is not held by too strong antibiotics either. So, you know, we want to exterminate a whole chain, organism in a chain. So what happens? Other things spring up. The year that smallpox got eliminated, it was around the corner. So nature has its way of, you know, it finds ways and means. Shurabindo says even if mankind were to eliminate all causes of death, material causes, death will yet find its way. Because the reason for death is not material. It is the need of the infinite being to have infinite experience on a finite basis. Something so profound a truth that even if you eliminate, that's the story of Hiranyakashyapa. That he eliminates all causes of death. I should not die outside, I should not die inside, it should be neither day nor evening, nor by astra, nor by shastra, nor by animal, nor by man, nor by the god. So you know, he thinks that's one line of approach in current scenario that I must discover each cause and eliminate it. But death finds its way. The reason is that it's nothing to do with just material cause. It will devise new ways. It doesn't matter. It will find its way at some point of time. And the reason is we have to tackle the deeper causes. So that's where the whole view of life has to change. It's not just about finding some simple remedies. And the other aspect which we miss out is, as I was saying, is that we are disconnected from not just within, not just around us, but we are disconnected from that vast light, truth, power. There is a very simple meditation Shurabindo gives. It's not, he doesn't give as a meditation, but a remedy says, um, just above your head, there is a vast ocean of peace, light, wideness, calm, joy, infinity. But there is a hard lid doesn't allow that has to either become open or it breaks sometimes or it has to become malleable to allow it to come. So as if we believe, you know, this is the other, um, as I said, presumption of modern 
science. One is that uh, material reality is the only reality. Second is sense is the only evidence. So entire evidence-based medicine and all that. And the third is reason is the only highest means of knowing. The mind is the ultimate. But there is something greater than mind and which can be brought into the play. Here we come directly into what Shurabindo says. That there are ranges above the mind which have not yet manifested because there are still not centers within the body to hold their action, to support their action. And this we can see even in evolutionary biology that you know the, the prefrontal cortex and uh, the neocortex is still developing. Because why it is developing we don't know. There, there are centers here which, which are yet not fully organized. Certain things are very organized in us. Emotion, impulse and certain kind of reason is still organized. But intuition is not organized. It comes, it flashes and goes away because our body and brain doesn't support its action. So the evolutionary nesis is going to carry a support and it is very active. And interestingly, again, when we talk of the Kalyuk uh, scenario, every Kalyuk presages the Satyuk. It doesn't go like that. It doesn't go Kalyuk to Dwapar to Treta to Satyuk. So it is a preparation. The old order breaks in Kalyuk. And a new order has to emerge. And the mother says, today humanity is undergoing that kind of evolutionary pressure and evolutionary crisis. And that's why new diseases are emerging. Because the body and mind is unable to take the pressure. It's no more, not just the pressure outside. It's a pressure which is inside. Which we don't even understand. And it is there. It is there subtly. It is there outwardly. It comes in various ways. But it's a pressure to evolve. Pressure to adapt, pressure to become you know, wider, it's an evolutionary pressure and pressure to go beyond just the mental logical scheme of things and it is happening because we are reaching the walls which logic and senses have built. We are not able to find the answers. So this pressure is pushing us to exceed and that's why I believe that's the secret. People should take heart when couples get married and they fight with each other. So, a very simple remedy. You are very blessed. You are being given a chance to adapt and evolve. If both thought alike, then where is the question of evolution? Both are very happy, satisfying each other's ego sense. But when somebody is completely opposite, when God really blesses you, He says, Good, now you need to evolve. This is your other self. This too is divine, now try. So you know when you try, you evolve, you adapt, it brings in a new kind of harmony at a new level. Unfortunately most people break down and you know break away, that's another aspect of it. But essentially uh, these are old strategies and tricks of God, you know, and so we should uh, understand that these are his plays, these are his ways uh, and his shadows and his cunning. So these are the ways he works to help us to evolve. The evolutionary challenge is increasing by the day and we have to adapt uh, to this pressure. And this adaptation is not just to the fast pace of life. There are new forces which have entered the earth and they are pressing upon mankind to evolve, to adapt, to adapt. We have to open to them. It's We are witnessing an unprecedented stage in evolution, just like when monkeys evolved into human beings. What would be going on inside their brain, we cannot, you know, envisage. What happened to the mudfish? If you really look at a mudfish, it was a miserable creature. It is neither belongs to 
uh, water nor belongs to land. So if you really look at a mud fish, the way it uh, slithers in the little mud, because it has to still breathe by water, but it has been thrown onto the land, and to breathe, it has to use that little water which is trapped inside the mud. So it slithers and rolls, you know, and it doesn't have feet to really jump. So nature does that experiment, but the mud fish is going to change one day into modern man. There's a transition that took place. So too we are in the position of a new mud fish. We are neither creatures of the past nor creatures of the future. We have been thrown out of our comfort zones and thrown into a place where we don't know how to breathe, how, what is the new law of today's life and today's children are thrusting it upon us, compelling us to change despite ourselves and tomorrow this little infant step presages a great climb, a great leap, the leap from man to superman. I will close with this with few lines from Savitri as I love to do and then have interaction and questions. from book 4, Canto 3, the book of birth and quest, it applies to all of us and this is the great invitation to the future which is compelling us to evolve and change. As a fallout of it, we also have illnesses. This is part of the great journey and the great adventure is all force compelled, fate driven, earth born race. O petty adventurers in an infinite world and prisoners of a dwarf humanity, how long will you tread the circling tracks of mind around your little self and petty things, but not for a changeless littleness where you mend, not for vain repetition where you build, out of the immortal substance you were made. This is the view. Matter is spirit that has crystallized itself. It always has that link. Out of the immortal substance you are made. Your actions can be swift revealing steps. Your life, a changeful mold for growing gods. There is a view of life, the Upanishads speak of it. That, that the, at the Upanishad, that all the gods have plunged inside the human body. And this life need not be like an animal. It can be a changeful mold for the growing gods. A seer, a strong creator is within. He's not somebody outside. Yes, doctors can be, if they like, wonderful channels of the healing force and of something greater than that, if they like. But so can we be. We don't have to necessarily Seek a doctor's help for that because a seer, a strong creator is within. The immaculate grandeur broods upon your days and now this punchline 
almighty powers are shut in nature's cells. So each cell is built with that perfection, that perfect consciousness inside each cell. And if you just learn to bring trust into them, to open them to that light, that wonder, that glory that is hidden inside it, it will take care of things. A greater destiny waits you in your front. This transient earthly being, if he wills, can fit his acts to a transcendent scheme. He who now stares at the world with ignorant eyes can fill those orbs with an immortal sight. The earth you tread is a border screened from heaven. The life you lead conceals the light you are. Absolutely, without a doubt, and I am saying this on the basis of authentic experiences of a few, uh, of quite a few. But only thing is that we should not turn it into a kind of uh, um, uh, meditation is one of the means. One may use other means. Uh, uh, so, if you ask, can it be? Yes, but um, it, there are certain conditions in the present human consciousness. So, that kind of faith, that kind of you know absolute absence of fear and receptivity in the body. So if one has, for instance, uh, done exercise to make the body more receptive, it is far more easier to receive the higher consciousness and get cured than if one has let the body remain like a sloth. So there are conditions. Of course, the highest grace a body is not really open to. I mean, it can be open to, but we are not ready to receive it. But in principle, yes, and there are instances both known to modern medicine, known to all of us, I'm sure. A couple of them, Govind was narrating, I know quite a few, it can be cured. And when I say it can be cured, means any disease. It can be, I know of instances, I mean one instance I'll tell you in Ashram. There was a lady who still is alive, 30 years back she was found with ovarian cancer in stage 3. She decided against any treatment. Anyways, 30 years back in India, there wasn't much available. She was still alive. So, she just left it to mother. So, if you talk of possibilities, yes, definitely. Many things. Surrender, receptivity, openness, uh, trust, all these things go together. So, you know, receptivity of the physical consciousness. But surrender is a very, very great, you know, step. So all this it means, which means no fear would come, because it won't be an instant miracle. It may be, but usually it is not. Even sometimes, Mother has said, disease may appear as if it is worsening, just like homeopathy. Because the resistance which brought out the disease becomes more. So, you know, it's one starts with surrender, it's very easy, but the moment after two days, you know, one sees uh, my fever has gone up from 102 to 104, then one says, might as well, you know, talk to a doctor. And, as I said, there are conditions. In our present state, there are conditions. But in principle, it is possible, it has been done and is being done. And in days to come, it will become more and more better. Because, uh, as I said, nature has turned the new leaf. So, it will make the human body as such more receptive.
watching Healing by Vijay Mantra in TV Asia. Kumar Swami is the proponent and there is a great research team that is going to be established in Punjab. Uh, has Arvindo touched upon any... Uh, hello, hello, one minute. Uh, can I you one minute? Hold on. Uh, people here cannot hear you. Uh, I'll so, repeat the question. Yeah. I'll repeat the question uh, for the moment. Just wait for the mic. Huh. Can come. Hmm? So for the moment I'll repeat the question. It's a very good question. It's about um, uh, what is being referred to as uh, a TV Asia program where Beej Mantras, one of the known proponents is uh, Mr. Kumaraswamy and he's um, uh, practicing it. There are many others, you know, who have come. Even recently I was reading an interview by Dr. Jasraj. Uh, not Dr. Jasraj, Pandit Jasraj. And some of his disciples are um, also doing it. I know a couple of people in Chennai who are doing it. And uh, definitely Beej Mantras uh, have a great power and um, I'll tell you one incidence, it may be absolutely, it's a mind-blowing incidence and I don't know, people may think it is superstition but it is a story um, witnessed by uh, Professor Manoj Das and he recounted to me and he said this is one thing which I have witnessed actually, he said I would never believe it if I didn't witness it. What I am going to tell you is absolutely out of the blows, but it's even despite all this opening, you know, when I heard the story, it took me a while to sink inside. The story is that it's a belief, I have grown up with that, that in India, they, you know, in villages there are ojhas. Now, ojhas no mantras and they are respected and revered and they are especially useful in, you know, bite cases like snake bite and this and I had heard story, I heard about them that snake bait and the Ojha did mantra and called the snake and all this. But Professor Manoj Das has witnessed this, that you know actually a boy was dead by the snake bite and he was being taken to the Shamshan cremation when suddenly from the other side the Ojha was coming and the mother was crying. So he said what happened? He said snake has bit. He said bit, put the boy. He fell to whatever because there is a time which elapses between you know, the, what we call as clinical death and the complete uh, disintegration process that begins. And he started doing this mantra and actually the snake came and he started rolling in the mud and he went over that part which was bit and then he slithered and went away and the boy woke up. Now this is a thing which has been witnessed by him. Otherwise, you know, uh, it's so difficult to believe that it is possible. So if something like that is possible, but the, in principle it is very easy to understand because behind every animate and inanimate object there is a consciousness, there is an energy, there is a being and mantras are ways to master those energies, those beings and they are like you know loops of um, just as we throw a loop and if it is uh, now modern missile technology which can change an aircraft and strike it wherever it is so these are like loops which can be thrown at a level of consciousness and they can put a new nose around whatever they want to draw and can draw into the atmosphere. And uh, the same way the mantra healing has been done not only through beach mantras but by invoking the higher deities that uh, through mantras they can be brought down to the earth atmosphere and you know do any healing, healing seance. But the problem is that it is not now a knowledge which is lost. So many people who are not mantra siddha, if they try to do it, it may not work out. Because you have to have the siddhi of the mantra. It's a tapasya. As I said, you know, just as a doctor spends uh, so many years 
to be able to give that one little injection, you know, which looks like after all, what is he doing? He just giving the injection. But the amount of knowledge that has gone into is tremendous. So same way when these people have done it, they have done it as a sadhana. Like Oja's whole lifestyle had to be very different. His food, his getting up in the morning, the way so many hours he had to do it. So if there are people like that, then definitely it is very powerful. But I am not sure whether it can work out. Sometimes it may. Whether you know once, once somebody picks up a bead mantra from, from a book and suddenly tries it, it may not work out. Yeah, it doesn't work out. Because there are conditions, there are people who master it. It's like an energy. So people master this energy and then it can be applied. Are you Oh yes, sorry. <laughs> this is technology. <laughs> or maybe the problem in my ears. Yeah. Yes. There is certificate in Los Angeles funeral. Lukan died on 7th March 1957. And then up to 27th March of 1967. Yes. His body was in the same condition as he was died for a few minutes. Yes. That's the power of yoga. Yes. Number two, second question. When Mahabharata used to start, Vishwar Pita was 120 years old. Origin was about 80 years old. Yes. was 96 years old. Yes. But that was a Vapar Yoga. Mm-hmm. Pure atmosphere, pure thought, pure surrounding, everything was Arma, Vajra, Kartavya, Sarvatara. In Kaliyo, when everything is qualified, mm-hmm. it's, it's possible mm-hmm. to get the same aim and same goal in this area. Yes, yes. I mean, the first one is a very good observation that you have said. It's well known that Paramahansa Yogananji, you know, could, uh, his body remained a glow for many hours, for many days. Uh, Shobindo's body remained a glow uh, for 111 hours with a golden light and thousands of people went past. Body was not preserved with anything. This was witnessed by so many persons right then and there. Um, 111 hours, five days the body was lying like that and the French law was that you have to bury cremate the body in 24 hours. So a special law, it was still under French India, 1950, because Pondicherry was liberated in 54. And so people, the doctor would come every 24 hours to make sure that the body is, uh, you know, there are no signs of disintegration or decomposition. So that is true. Even people are known to go into cataleptic trance, even to prolong life by the superimposition of a higher dharma. It's not a change of dharma, it is a superimposition of a higher dharma. Like Shubhinda speaks of Swami Brahmananda on the shores of Narmada who was more than 200 years old. He would describe about the uh, 1857 mutiny as if it was, you know, uh, yesterday it took place. So there have been instances like that which are promises of the future. It is not yet the natural dharma of man. As to the Kali part, as I was saying that, you know, leaving aside too much of the details of Kali um, but uh, the, the thing is, in Kali the old law breaks down. But it is to prepare for a new law. It is because man's entire consciousness is shut from everything else and it's focused on matter. So that, you know, man can work on matter and material energies. That is why the god of Kali is science, as we have today. Because it is necessary, it is part of the working. And now that we have understood or gathered all the gains of matter, then we are preparing for a new cycle in the next cycle. Of course, Dwapar Krishna is toward the end. It, is, it was not the best of times actually, you know. Dwapar beginning the age would have been much higher. So, 
Yes. How to normal human being to process for the superhuman being? What is the process? It's a triple process, aspiration, rejection and surrender. Aspiration is like the fire that bakes the clay. That's how the Veda puts it. When the fire of aspiration is lit and nurtured and fostered by various means, like this satsang or whatever, I mean, it's, uh, there are ways and means to keep the fire alive through reading books, through meeting people, through going to places which embody that fire. So this fire bakes the body and the mind and makes it ready. So this is one part. Second, it has to be cleansed, you know, if the vessel is unclean, it has to be cleansed so that the Amrit can pour into it. So this cleaning process in many steps and stages, the gods come and help, uh, the vessel has to be made supple and white, Varuna makes it white, um, Mitra makes it sweet, and Bhagav cleanses it of all wrong enjoyments, false kind of, you know, uh, the poison of desire and etc. That has to be cleansed. And then, surrender. So ultimately, not by human effort, but by the grace that these things happen. So as the vessel becomes ready, then Soma is poured into it. Soma is the nectar of immortality and its nature is delight. So one begins to grow in delight and this delight not only heals, but this delight enhances things, it enhances health, it, it subtilizes the consciousness, it makes the consciousness vaster. So this is the process in a nutshell. But it's a lifetime journey. I mean, I'm just saying one to three. <laughs> it may be one life, two life, three life. <laughs> but somewhere you have to start. Any other questions? Uh, yes, please. Dr. Deepak Chopra is the latest exponent of this healing, what you talked about. Is he on the right path? Very difficult question. <laughs> I have read his works, some of his works. He writes well. There are some key ideas which are good. Um, now it's not about one person, but the problem is one should not sell a miracle. I am totally against it. So when you know Vivek was organizing this. I told him make it clear that you know people should get an idea that they will come and argue a technique and two days they'll be cured of all problems. So sometimes when we make things appear as instantaneous and miraculous, we deviate from truth. Truth is a hard conquest. As I was saying that you know there are people who have done years of sadhana, but you know the problem is if you write that it reduces the TRP and the celebrity. Because in this fast age, people want a very quick remedy. And if it's not given to them or not assured, they're not happy about it. But truth is truth. And um, um, in principle, all these things are true. But it doesn't mean that instantly it can be done. More and more, it will become possible, as is happening. So in the total economy of working in the universe, he, like many others, have thrown these seed ideas and thereby created a soil in the mind. The soil has become fertile. So today, thanks to him and many others, people can accept the idea. Even if sometimes it goes overboard, like, you know, I'll give you another example. Baba Ramdev has done an admirable work to, uh, you know, 
wake up people to a way of life. But the problem is that he has done, has gone overboard. I have seen people develop uh, high blood pressure because of Kapal Bhati and um, I have stopped their Kapal Bhati and they become alright. So I mean I am saying with a very authentic thing. At the same time I appreciate his effort. But you know when we think that something can be an instant cure because before one does pranayama, if you really look, the, the mistake that we make. Now people in those age when they used to do pranayama and they were heart yogis, Look at the lifestyle. There is one Hatyogi in Bangalore. For eight hours continuously he does Surya Namaskar. That is Hat Yoga. And then you do Pranayama so your body can take that overdrive of vital energy. But if I remain what I am and suddenly do Pranayama, what will happen? My body which is still like a uh, old time coal engine is suddenly put on the tracks where you know magnetic rails and overhead electricity will just blow off. The engine has to be ready. So the, he advocates lifestyle. But you know, 10 days people go to the camp. I know people who go there and they you know take only chana and you know twice they eat like jindals in uh, India, there are places. They come back, they are the same person because nothing essentially has changed. One has to understand it's a whole inner overhauling which uh, needs to be done and adopted as a way of life, many other things. If one does pranayama and doesn't release that extra energy either through a vigorous workout or through a vigorous outpouring of mental energy which is also one of the ways to release that energy, the engine may break down. So it has to be also seen as a science and not just as a kind of uh, credulous belief. So that's how I look at it. But all these things are good <laughs> because at least you know they help humanity cross a critical barrier in the mind. So at the level of the mind, it makes, yes, it's possible. That's good. It's good, if, good uh, even that. Yes, please. So many people follow Baba Ramdev. But very few, I will say one in million, follow his diet. Mm. <coughs> yes, yes, that's true. His diet has no spices, no oil, no ghee, no butter. Yeah. Only fruits, vegetables, and the bread. Absolutely. So that's why I said there are, it's a package deal. Even the attitude towards life. You see, in ancient times, um, I'm just taking a little digression. Um, Hatha Yoga was not given to um, those who were developed in their inner consciousness. Hatha Yoga, if you read, was characteristically the yoga that the Asuric and the Rakshasic type did. It was the yoga perfected by Ravana. Hiranyakashu, he did Hatha Yoga. Years he would stand on one feet with, you know, hand up. Because the more the consciousness in, is entrenched in matter, it can work only with that. But the Trimarga of the Gita, it doesn't speak of that at all. It gives a very different approach. So, you know, for each kind of humanity, there is a kind of yoga which is good for it and it should follow it in its fullness. But many times... That fullness is not just outer but an inner. Now imagine a person does only Hatha Yoga and Pranayama but minus the yoga part of it that means Ishwar, Pranidhan etc. you know which Patanjali brings. What would happen? It's a gigantic ego that will develop. One will have a fit body, strong body, tremendous powerful vital force but no surrender, no humility. Now such a creature can be more dangerous to the earth. So that's not the kind of superhumanity that one wants. So it's a package deal, otherwise it's very dangerous. Sometimes I really feel that, that you know, this kind of a over popularity of a thing has its own flip side. 
unless we develop the humility, already with the little powers at hand, we are doing enough chaos. Ravana was a great hot yogi, and it's a known thing. I mean, the man did tapasya over thousand years. Can we imagine? Was willing to cut his head and lay down at the feet of Shiva. But it only aggrandized his ego. There is a very interesting poem of Shirobindo, Mahatmas, referring to Kutumi in you know the tradition in theosophy. And there he speaks of somebody who um, you know does yoga and he says he perfected Hat Yoga in three days, not the yoga practiced in Kali, but the Hat Yoga of the old Lemurian kings that Ravana and Harinagashup did. And they did for ages and he did in three days and he comes back to Vyasa and says, initiate me into the great mystery. So Vyasa shakes his head, he says, no, 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 you are not yet ready. So he goes back. Then he says, then he did the Raj Yoga in three days. This is a, you know, poem. And then he says, not the Raj Yoga which men in Kali with strain practice, but the Raj Yoga which was done in that age and there again he says the Atlantis kings and other names he takes. So then he comes back again, he is full of shining and you know his body is acquired a Vajra like consistency and he is luminous and hairs are flowing and then he comes and Vyasa again shakes his head, he says you are not pure enough. Go now and find Krishna where he dwells. So he goes and he throws his sight. He has already become a Siddha. So he is throwing his sight and looking for Krishna. So he sends it in the palaces of Yudhishthira doesn't find him. He sends him in all kinds of places. He doesn't find hermitages. He doesn't find Krishna. Then in that state, distorted state, all my powers, I cannot find him. And then as the poem goes, that suddenly he sees an Ahir who is jumping along the slopes of a mountain full of delight but he is not saying to anyone the cause of his delight so as he goes near him this man who is mad with the delight intoxicated with that ananda kicks him this yogi and all knowledge and power passes out of him he becomes like a beggar and then he becomes this Sahir becomes like a child because in him he sees Krishna and then he says you beggar, take back this knowledge and power and go away. Then with that lesson of humility he becomes ready just to become a Mahatma who would govern a particular cycle, you know, sub-cycle of creation. So, you know, we see in Shavindra's life what a pranayam he did, four to five hours a day for almost a year and he used to do it regularly, systematically and his hairs acquired a shine, his body had a glow which people used to see. That pinkish white creamy glow and the, all the hairs uh, used to glow as if he has put hair oil. So Puraniji asked him, Sir, what has happened to you? And Shubhinda would, you know, sidetrack the question and say, And what has happened to you? <laughs> and after doing all this, he gave this new yoga because he knew, you know, it. It, it may be fine, but also it is not really now suited to the new age because the way of life and other things and uh, consciousness has become definitely a little more subtle. So we have to practice a more intrinsic yoga, which is an inner process. Uh, as, as I understood from your comment that uh, soul is not residing in your body. Is that right? I yeah. think the soul is not residing in the body. Invisible, but is a subject of realization. Yes. When something is happened, 
because something going inside in your consciousness. So what is the difference between consciousness and soul? Yeah, first uh, I'll speak of soul part. Because consciousness is a uh, very vast term, it is the warp and woof of life. Everything in this creation is an act of consciousness. Both the spiritual and the material are aspects of consciousness. The one consciousness in its subtlest state is spiritual. In its pure essence of love is the soul. In its densest aspect is matter. So everything is an act of consciousness. But coming to soul, soul doesn't reside in the body, but body resides in the soul. There is a very nice little uh, episode of Swami Ram, uh, Ramtirth. So he gave a talk in, uh, to an audience and at the end of it audience asked him, Sir, do you mean to say that uh, uh, you, you have a body or uh, you have a soul? Yes, he said, you mean to say that you have a soul? Everybody has a soul? He says, no. I mean to say, I am a soul and I have a body. This is the realized state. It is not only in moment, it is a fact of existence. One is identified with the soul, then one no more makes the mistake of thinking that I am the body. The body is a garment. I am not this dress. However much others may judge me by this dress, I am not this dress. I am the soul and I have a body. There is a purpose for this body. It is not that it is without a purpose, I must work upon it. The dress must suit the wearer. That's why I was to I have to ask Vivek that, you know, if I have to talk to doctors, is it okay to wear pajama kurta or is it fine if I wear a pant and shirt minus the tie because tie is something which I hate from the core of my heart. So he was very kind. He said, no, no, you wear whatever you want. Be yourself. But, uh, you know, it should suit, suit an occasion. So, it's fine. So one uses the, but one is not tied to the dress. I may wear it because I like it for my own delight, for whatever purposes. I can do away with it. That's not me. So same way this body is not me. I'm not this mind. I'm not saying it, I mean intellectually or philosophically as a view of speculating, but as a fact of existence. The day I realize I'm a soul, then death is afraid of coming near. Well, it cannot destroy me. It can only take away the coat. Fine. Wearer, the, the master who stitched this dress for me has already kept another ready. So the moment he says, this dress is torn, he will say, don't worry, you have paid the price for the next one. The better one. So why should I be afraid? Malana Rome says so beautifully, why should I be afraid of dying? When I died a mineral, I became a plant. Why should I be afraid of dying? I died a plant and became an animal. Why should I be afraid of dying? I died an animal and became a man. What death can do to me? But change to a better and better self. So this is the way one begins to experience life, which is so beautiful. Frees us from all fear. There was one more question, I think. Some yes, please. Yeah, I have one question yes. from a medical community. Yes, please. You know, we, we know we don't have answer for so many diseases, and spiritual health you know, is really important. But there is no easy prescription for spiritual health. So, which way we need to guide the patient? Because there are so many ways. They say you do yoga, you do Yes, yoga. that's a very so good. 
Yes, a very, very practical question. And I think it question has to be tackled on two levels. One is as doctors, uh, we need to upgrade our own software and practice some kind of yoga. <laughs> you know, otherwise it lacks the conviction and authenticity. I can't tell, you know, I have no adhikar of speaking something if I am not living it or trying to live it. I mean, it, it makes no sense. It becomes uh, either a hypocrisy or a kind of intellectual uh, outpouring, which is which doesn't matter, which which may convince somebody. It's not the right way to do it. Uh, at the same time, out of all the number of practices which are there, and there are plenty, uh, each is suited to each one. Two things which I can do: one is to teach the principle of moderation, which is if one has to in one word summarize healthy lifestyle, it is moderation and satogun. You know, otherwise people are confused. Should I eat this? Should I eat that? Should I do? Follow moderation. Too much of exercise. Now, you know, we, you must have read, you must be knowing, of course. Um, we had a person who, uh, in the ashram context, every morning he would go for a long run, almost, you know, t 10 miles and all this. He was a non smoker and he had a heart attack. So he asked me, I said, Why were you overdoing it? So he said, Is it? I didn't know that if, if I do too much exercise, there can be a problem. I said, anything too much has a problem. <laughs> so now, of course, we know it that, you know, sometimes uh, overdoing uh, cardio can precipitate an attack because it's not like that. You have to, <laughs> there are natural limits and you expand slowly. So moderation is a very good lesson. Um, second is if people can realign to the rhythms and patterns which I was speaking of and each one can discover his own pattern. But in terms of practice, uh, something very simple is uh, guided imagery, uh, visualization. This is the simplest way of all the practices. I mean, I'm talking of something which uh, I tell people and it's very helpful. And uh, one doesn't have to go to a guru or baba or anybody or treat even the doctor as a guru, which is more dangerous, you know. <laughs> it becomes uh, not a way of knowledge, but a way of earning money. So, uh, uh, in all, you know, humility and nobility of the profession. Uh, simple thing like guided imagery where a person imagines by the help of thought. Something like calling peace, 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 and it can be suggestion and an image, maybe of light coming down. It's an image, but image and thought have a great power to open the path. Yesterday I was speaking of thought is a vehicle. So one can say peace in the mind and peace in the head and peace in the thoughts, peace in the eyes, peace in the sight, peace in the ears, peace in the hearing, peace in the mouth, peace in the speech, peace in the heart, peace in the heartbeats, Peace in the lungs, peace in the breathing, peace in all the organs, peace in each cell. What is that sloka? Patram karne bhishanyam deva. Anyone knows? It's a meditation. Patram karne bhishanyam deva. Varnam patram pashyanti. It's one of the peace mantras in, uh, I think it is Aitreya Upanishad. Very beautiful. Basically amounts to that. May my hearing be auspicious. May my eyes see the auspicious. Peace is a concrete reality. It heals and cures. If every day we call peace, 
we don't have to find a time to do it. When we are in a hurry, we should do it. When we are rushing out of the house inwardly, peace, peace, peace. Be with me, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. When I'm driving the car, peace, peace, peace. When I have to meet someone, peace. When I have to speak, peace. When I have to take a decision, peace, peace, peace. Quiet, quiet. Any language, any secular or religious or spiritual, doesn't matter. Peace and God care, nothing about all these things. They love us and they like if we call them. And after a while, peace becomes a way of life, a part and parcel of one's consciousness. One has to just, little concentrate and it comes. But we should call it peacefully, not peace, why aren't you coming? <laughs> I don't have peace. You should say, I need your peace. It'll come. It's a living deity. So many ways of doing it. Yoganitra is helpful. Long back, Dr. Uh, I think Denton uh, had done these studies on Yoganitra. In India now, they have started doing this, uh, you know, this bypass can be avoided and their studies, uh, people are doing it that through the practice of uh, pranayama, simple anilom vilom and deep relaxation and change lifestyle, you can perhaps bypass the bypass. So there are studies like that which are being done. So many ways of doing the same thing. I'm just saying that, you know, guided imagery, calling peace, this is something which I have practiced. Uh, Yoga Nidra, always when I go to the bed, I have a very simple way. I put my head on the pillow and say, Ma, it's your lap. It's so wonderful. Cure for insomnia. The second cure is read the life divine. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, you are very true that a lot depends on the change of perspective. And I use this example of, you know, um, there are two examples, images. One is to make the uh, line smaller without, you know, rubbing it. So one draws a bigger line. But a better perspective is, uh, you know, an image of um, a small little square and having a little dot in, in around it a dot or a little black spot and then you know you keep enlarging that in as you enlarge the perspective the thing becomes small it doesn't go away mind you but it it gives us a great vantage point so to that extent perspective does help uh, in um, changing things now how does one go about always in any kind of counseling there has to be to begin with a process of catharsis 
So um, uh, one of the problems with these quick fix advices is that they don't listen to the patient. And patient wants to be heard. As he said, I think more than the pill, all credit to the pill, but you know, the very fact that you could speak out much of the, you know, there are energies which are locked inside like knots, and no one ever hears us and it's a very sad, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a tragedy that when we go to a doctor, he is itching to write a prescription. It's not his fault, uh, things are very busy, in Indian setting it's really very busy. One needs to give time to a patient, needs to listen to the patient. Maybe there are things which have no relevance to what you really, uh, apparently no relevance to what you want to tell. So, but let the patient speak out. Actually, anybody can help anyone through this process, very simple. Let the person speak out, listen to him with compassion, with, you know, understanding his situation. It may be very trivial from a certain perspective, but uh, it's so real to the person. Like, you know, many times we tell a child, you know, why are you crying? It's a toy. Now it's not a toy for a child, you know, for a child it's a whole world and we have collapsed his world. So, you know, so one has to listen and allow a process of catharsis. Then the suggestions go in and that will depend on giving the right suggestion at the right time and then leading through it, not through a lecture. Lecture is fine in a, you know, situation like this. Maybe an odd suggestion. Sometimes uh, I have to just wait for two, three sessions before even one small suggestion can be implanted. And it's a very difficult uh, to really put it into a fixed system because it will depend from person to person. Some persons are very open and receptive. Others come just to want a pill, you know, because they've heard and, you know, they come to you and they uh, want a quick prescription of an antidepressant and you can't completely <laughs> disappoint them. And if you ask them to come second time before you prescribe a pill, they won't come. Fine, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't do private practice, so maybe for me it's fine, but it's not the right way to help him either. So one has to take into account where the person stands. Sometimes depression is simply because one is too fatigued. The nerves are too tired and they are just responding to, they are sinking, their energy level is just going down. So there can be many causes, including biological, and all these factors have to be taken into consideration. Spiritual healing takes heredity, uh, physical factors, all this into consideration. I am just summarizing a whole process. But if a patient comes, one has to allow catharsis, one has to uh, kindle faith. This is very important. One of the problems, even before perspectives is, especially in depression, that two basic powers of human nature, which are... Uh, fundamental to help us live are will and faith and it kind of paralyzes it so it, it first paralyzes the will so there is no dearth of advice that people give to someone who is depressed why don't you go out for a jog very good of course but he could do if he could do it he would not be standing before you in a state of depression <laughs> it doesn't work out because you know the will is paralyzed so one has to start with little exercise one doesn't have to say why don't you go out for a jog and you'll be fine Pick up one single thing where he could exercise his will, something very small, something within the realm of being able to do and then build up. So it's a very, you know, it's almost like I always say physicians have to uh, do the act of almost, you know, uh, delivery of a baby. So you have to see the right time and then slowly, you know, bring around. And uh, the other thing is um, faith. So the next step is faith is gone. I, nothing can help me, nobody can help me. So that has to be kindled and it can be kindled through the mind. Cognitive therapists try to do it. They don't use the word faith. 
uh, auto suggestion can help it and eventually most important is that in especially counseling in fact in all medical practice a psychotherapist or the physician let's put it in a more general way he is equally the catalyst of a change after all when we talk of double blind studies in in uh, in medicine for a drug basically we mean to say that doctors personality his biases can influence the patient unfortunately we take the other lesson but the lesson of the whole thing is that if a doctor puts his force of will and faith in what he's practicing it can help now many doctors don't realize it but they uh, give a pill to get cured but give a very wrong suggestion from within it's a very subtle thing suggestions are actual forces they may not tell a patient but uh, it is going on inside isko zyada din to hai nahi anyways he has come to me so i have to do something you know and he writes a prescription but actually the doctor himself doesn't have enough faith in what he's doing and uh, it it doesn't help so much so he must always have this faith that um, whatever he may know with all the knowledge of his science prognostications are very dangerous and very wrong we really don't know what may happen we should remain open i'm not saying one should give false hopes that is not good that's being untrue don't tell a patient oh you take this and you'll be fine that would be playing upon credulousness of the patient but equally let's not take hope so let's remain inside open with trust and faith and inspire a patient and then depending on where he is slowly things will kindle so will and faith are very important ingredients catharsis of the deep rooted knots is very important because they are the you know burning spots and then of course the right suggestion and the perspective and then some practical things like uh, you know guided imagery and finally if there be a need then as a material support use of medication so this would complete a picture Yeah, yeah. He speaks about that yoga, that yoga power, the yoga shakti. So he had it with him, so he could work it out. Not only with many others. It's a very interesting instance of somebody coming with a serious pain in the lower uh, right abdomen, uh, which by description looks like appendicitis. But Shivendra saw a little dark spot dancing out there, and actually the mother saw a subtle hand going, picking up, which was dancing and throwing it far, and he said, "Oh, I am cured. I am cured. I am cured." so you know those kind of things are there and that's why when shubhendu left his body niruddha would ask him we have seen you cure thousands of persons like this why don't you cure yourself now and he said can't explain you won't understand because he was drawing within his body the very forces of darkness as a last battle to annihilate like shiva drinking poison so that of course is another chapter of his life but it is the yoga shakti which can operate at many levels there is a vital power there is a mental power there is a spiritual power and there is of course the supramental power so depending on the receptivity and openness one can apply any of them in reiki one applies the vital power in certain systems of healing we apply mind power in spiritual healing we apply ascending powers of a higher and higher consciousness man is not yet ready for the supramental power that's why any yoga shakti we apply there is a play of forces it cannot is 100% result one cannot guarantee because it's only the super mind which can guarantee 100% result man has to uh, body has to develop to a point where it can receive it yes 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 sir please 
what is the function of pineal body and how it is associated with the spiritual process? Um, the, no, uh, about spiritual process, I don't know. I don't think uh, spirit is uh, connected to pineal body. Uh, of course, people meditate here. Agya Chakra is one of the forms of meditation. But just as they meditate here, doesn't mean that heart has to do with spirituality. It's a physical organ. So, pineal body is a physical organ. As of now, it is it is associated with the secretion of a, a hormone called melatonin, uh, and it follows the rhythm of the sun and the light. And it is associated with a certain form of depression, which is called a seasonal affective depressive syndrome. So, you know, SADS. So, it's a syndrome where people, uh, based on the seasons, go into depression. So that depends on places. Some people in winter go into depression, and in some other uh, latitude, it's the other way around, in spring. So pineal gland and secretion is related to that, and it also has this uh, place in regulating the sleep cycle. So melatonin uh, is one of the medications used for, as a natural um, treatment for insomnia. It's freely available in the West. Also, it's come in the uh, in Indian market. Three milligram tablet, two or three tablets, I mean, one or two tablets <laughs> at night. So that's the role of the pineal gland. At one time, there was a theory because people wanted to prove everything on a material basis, not realizing that it's a blind alley. You know, they were enthusiasts, especially among Indians. See, our shastra me likha hai. Science we are Now the danger of that is, if really at the end of the day, soul is nothing but a secretion of the pineal gland, actually you have done away with the soul, not realizing it. Because one has proved that it's matter. And they were enthusiastic like that, because they felt very happy about it. See, our science, people knew it. Science was the new religion. Now it's no more the new religion, but at one point of time it was a new religion. So everything had to be... Uh, be proved on the crucible of science and its physical methods. Now science works wonderfully when you deal with physical objects with a fixed quantity. But science begins to fail when you enter into the realm of quality. So much so that in psychology now the new concept has come of auto-ethnicity because even a single experience is regarded as valid. How do you measure whether somebody loves or not? How do you measure bhakti? How do you measure an inner experience? We just said just some time back about peace. Maybe some of us felt peace. How do I say it is true and it is valid? So, you know, uh, science, material science, this is another kind of science, uh, begins to fail uh, as it enters from the realm of the physical to the realm of the spiritual. So, but there was a time when it was the new God. And uh, people used to say, I remember uh, um, I had a little talk with a friend, uh, I must be 15, 16, senior Cambridge, and my friend told me, ah, if God is there, can he, it, it later on became an argument, he must have read somewhere, that you know, uh, you cannot uh, create him in a test tube, uh, then how do you prove that God is there? So, that time I also blurted out not knowing that it is, you know, a very intuitive thing. I said, if he could be produced in the test tube, he wouldn't be God anymore. He would be at the mercy of material uh, chemicals. So, if something is, you know, a product of chemistry, uh, what we call as God, something not as an extraterrestrial, uh, you know, being who is bearded, but a consciousness which is so much vaster, it will not be that at all. I mean, it would be maybe another substance, uh, so it won't be worth it. So there are many such things like that which came up at a point of time, and the pineal gland theory being linked to the soul was one of them. But it's been discredited long back. The soul is an immaterial uh, reality, as you know, uh, he has brought out very beautifully. 
But immaterial is not that it's non-existent. It is again an error that existence is material existence. This is an error. Some of the most beautiful things we experience in life are non-material. And we won't exchange one of those things for anything else. Love is non-material. Joy is non-material. There may be certain processes which may be there, may not be there, but so valuable. Knowledge is non-material. Any amount of neuronal circuitry cannot tell us this knowledge. Knowledge is a non-material thing and the whole universe is running on that. So there is a non-material side of reality, what we call as subjective and very important and very precious to explore it. The yogis explored it and it's a whole um, journey in its own right. Yes. Is there something like moksha and what is the ultimate uh, aim of the Moksha is a state of consciousness, a state of freedom, freedom from the lower nature, freedom from ignorance, freedom from a fundamental ignorance that I am this body, this mind, this conglomeration of cells and therefore it brings peace, wideness, release by the very fact of this. So this is a state of consciousness, not a plane, but a state, which is different. Uh, in Shogunus Yoga, Moksha is a stepping stone. So one has to be free from the clutch of lower nature. But the problem with traditional Moksha is that Moksha is regarded as an end. But Shogunus says, fine, you are free from the clutch of this ignorance. But now, why this creation is and what is your work to be done there, that has to be done. So it's like, you know, uh, in the context of a doctor, uh, doctor must be free from disease if he has to work. It's the first condition. If he is suffering from influenza or you know Bengali or Madras eye, he cannot go and treat his patient. So he must be free from the illness. Of course, doctors do all kinds of things. They smoke and say don't smoke. But uh, you know, fundamentally, and uh, once free, moksha at a level. He must then go back and treat patients. He should not say, I am free of disease. I don't have any need. So, Shobindo says that this creation is a purpose and this purpose is to evolve towards a perfect expression of the divine. Right now it's an imperfect and a distorted expression. It must become a perfect expression. So, for that we must recover our true perfect consciousness. Right now we are identified with an imperfect consciousness. And we must recover the true and the perfect consciousness and then we must operate from that level and pour its energy and forces within, around, on creation so that this entire thing can evolve beautifully, harmoniously, not as now with so much struggle and pain. So that is the next step. So moksha is a step towards the greater becoming. Yeah, uh, there are laws and we can identify each plane has its own law. The plane of matter has its laws which, uh, uh, you know, like um, if I kick a desk, I'll get hurt. So it's a law. If you drop an object, you'll be attracted to gravity. The plane of life brings its own laws. So trees climb against gravity. They are attracted by sun, sunlight. Birds can fly, defying gravity for a while or use gravity for the flight. The plane of mind can defy even those laws. Mind can go beyond the gravity zone into distant planet. 
thought can reach out to somebody very very far away and in another time space continuum the inner life has its own laws so in the dream world there are other time space continuum which operate other energies we can come in contact with and the spirit has its own law the spirit is free of all laws and it is freedom itself so each plane has its own law and we have to uh, bring a greater law into this lesser one the law of the spirit into the law of matter and that's the whole journey so jatasya dhruvasya mrityu and you know stuff like that so yes i can remain bound to a certain set of becomings in a certain plane then it's a law if i choose to remain inside this hall then i am subject to all the conditions of this hall but i can equally walk out of the hall and if i walk out another kind of law begins to operate so as long as i choose to remain part of a certain zone or a plane then i am bound to that law but i can also choose to be there to change the law it's also possible that's what shubhendra brings that one can one is identified with matter what mother and shubhendra were doing they were not compelled to remain in the body but to remain in the body and yet keep on compelling the body to grow and progress towards that light that consciousness so that is the higher law which is yet to you know completely express itself yes Yes, as fundamentally, uh, though um, in Jain religion there is a very uh, vast and complex system of perfection. Um, I am not an expert um, either into Jainism or Buddhism, but from what I have understood and read, Jain is uh, a very very complex system. So. Um, its nirvana is not just the way buddhist nirvana end result is same end result is same but if you really go through the process buddha gave a shortcut but in the process of giving a shortcut a lot of complexity of creation was not taken into account jainism takes that into account um, this is one part but again like buddhism which is supposed to be a uh, non vedic religion in fact a contradiction to veda anatma and the vedanta basically again it goes to the same point except that buddha doesn't speak of what is there he doesn't he just speaks of a permanent beyond but it is he doesn't qualify it he doesn't speak about it actually he remains silent over it later day buddhist turned that silence into the filled words in buddha's mouth and you know <laughs> buddha didn't believe in god and well in a way it doesn't that's true but um, Vedanta equally does the same to Vedanta. Later, Vedanta was a reaction to Buddhism, but it ended up doing the same thing. Analytic creation as illusion. So, it only affirmed Buddha in a paradoxical way. <laughs> yes, yes, please. How would you define psychological illness? And then the other question is, how much of the subconscious feelings, not just the conscious thoughts, are anything? or the fears do you think is manifested as disease and yes. how much of it is an illusion and how much is it actually the truth it is very much real you know people who are afraid you cannot one thing that's my one of my big problems with the illusionist theory is you know it washes away the baby with the bath water and it's very insensitive besides you know to say somebody who is struggling i had this um, example of someone having a um, 
met with an accident because of a truck accident and uh, he, he had a fracture of the leg and he was lying in uh, the critical care and uh, one of uh, one of the doctor friends tells him oh it's karma take it you know, i felt it very insensitive you know uh, there is a truck fellow's karma why you you know blaming this fellow's karma he was on the right side and he, he didn't do anything wrong that way i mean I, i understand that karma theory would be that you know five words back you would have given him a knock but i feel it's very <laughs> it's very insensitive to you know so we should not say that these are not real but yes they have a temporary hold and uh, they are not the sole reality and we have a much greater truth inside us which can completely pick it up like a little worm on the road and throw it away so in that sense yes it's a very distorted reality but it is real at that time to the experiencing consciousness yes subconscious is a great role to play not only in psychological but in physical illnesses i am glad you brought it out uh, all chronic illnesses they recur because of the subconscious memory it is there in the cells and it brings it out even when you think you are cured many times have you you may have noticed that you know if you, i think i am all right you know it's right around the corner because it brings out it's there and cyclic illnesses recur because of the subconscious its hold is very strong on human nature and that's why one has to bring in a higher light to analyze it um it, it is important to bring that uh, otherwise it is a great role there was some some other part of your question one was the subconscious and its role the other was fear and all the fears how will they manifest how much will they manifest as disease even as frank physical illnesses they can manifest fear is its in its own right is a formation it can eventually you know it can change the cellular way you know basically it's it's a feeling a thought an energy so it can act upon the cell and uh, you know it can even bring circumstances into play so like any energy and therefore this is an energy one should not uh, you know uh, encourage in fact it should be annulled and discouraged it comes because human mind physical mind is so much prone to fear because of its ignorance it doesn't know what may happen so it fears the worst so that time one has to bring in trust and that grace and that light that whatever happens divine is carrying us he'll take care of things so with that there are many other ways but i'm saying in a nutshell one should definitely get rid of fear fear is itself a great disease and mother says it is the great alley of fear and falsehood are the great alley of death so fear must go in every form because within us is the one who fears not whom death cannot slay uh thank you gobe <laughs> yes yes please yeah so in a nutshell healthy self is just break the word heal thyself that is the only solution very interesting because it is also in hindi it is swastha i am glad you said swastha is swas asti he who is rooted in the self is healthy and he who moves away from his self true self that means and gets into the ego self desire self the image that first image of the katopanishad and the gita that is the beginning of ill health so wonderfully said health and swastha 
the word itself says, heal thyself. Yes. And swastha is be rooted in thyself, and that is swastha.